The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. It's nice to be with everybody, and it's worthwhile probably, and maybe we're all getting better at it, um, probably doing Zoom calls and these sort of live stream activities. But part of our responsibility is really sensing that we're here together. Because the idea that we're alone is that. It's an idea, but it can be a pretty compelling idea of being separate, being alone, being isolated, being left out. And so especially at these times, we need to activate and rely on our imagination to overcome that sort of conclusion that's a pretty limited idea that I'm alone, I'm apart. And just to use the imagination to sense that we're here together, many of us. And of course, there are many other beautiful comings together like we're having right now. So it's not just this particular talk and program, but many, many. Um, I don't know if any of you listened this morning uh, to uh, that public radio program on being. Krista Tippett was uh, interviewing someone who's done a lot of collaborative work with Wendell Berry, and they read a little bit from this poem, How to Be a Poet, again by Wendell Berry. In the first couple lines, make a place to sit down, sit down, be quiet. You must depend upon affection. And it just goes on from there. But I wanted to read the last two stanzas where Wendell Berry writes, Breathe with unconditional breath the unconditioned air. Shun electric wire. Communicate slowly. Live a three-dimensioned life. So just to pause there, I think that three-dimensional life, I would translate that, you know, in Buddhist terms, being connected with the body, being with embodiment. So again, he writes, live a three-dimensional life, stay away from screens, stay away from anything that obscures the place it is in. There are no unsacred places. There are only sacred places and desecrated places. Places where we, out of habit, have closed our hearts, thrown someone, some place, some situation out of our heart with some fixed idea that, you know, as I've been talking these last few months, the sort of basic expression of ignorance is the conclusion, the fixed idea, this doesn't matter, this doesn't belong this isn't worthy of this heart opening and connecting. So I'm turning away. I'm justifying turning away. And and therefore we miss life because whatever that experience is, it's showing up right here, right now. And here's the last stanzas, stanza that I thought was useful for our discussion, talking about how we heal the heart and mind. Accept what comes from silence. Make the best you can of it. 
of the little words that come out of the silence, like prayers, prayed back to the one who prays. Make a poem that does not disturb the silence from which it came. And this is for meditators, this is an interesting point. Make a poem that does not disturb the silence from which it came. How many of us in different moments of having a, you know, a quiet sit, a peaceful sit, having some insight, sensing some authentic love, that we make a poem out of that. You know, we think something that disturbs the silence, the unified heart and mind that that, that experience arose out of. And then we realize we've lost that moment, that refuge, that peace, that love. And so in, in kind of practice terms, we'd say that we want to cultivate this refuge of a stable, balanced, intimate, unified heart, mind, and body without being confused by it. Right? And it's interesting, you know, often in the introduction to meditation class that I teach, I talk about that we, this marriage of calm, tranquility, and alertness, brightness. And we often think of them as contradictory qualities. You can be bright, but if I'm really bright and alert, I'm not that calm and tranquil. Or I can be calm and tranquil, but then I lose some of that bright, alert, clarity. And instead, we want to think that these two qualities actually can support each other. And they really turn out to work well together. The more tranquil and calm the mind and body is, the more capacity it has to be alert and bright and clear. And the more clear the mind is, the more bright and interested and alert it is, it can really understand what might be in the way of tranquility, unnecessary holding, unnecessary reactivity. So we, we learn with time, studying the heart and the mind, that they really work together. And it's really the, um, you know, the essence of healing the mind and heart is realizing it isn't just a passive activity of calming, settling down as nice as that is. And nor can it just be about seeing and understanding. We need both of these qualities. And that's really this, uh, you know, the basic teaching of caring, especially at these times where there may be, probably are um, more difficulties, maybe more stress and anxiety and uncertainty with the pandemic. But, you know, individually we've had our own ups and downs and, as we say, 10,000 joys and sorrows for a long time. And that's not going to change even when this pandemic kind of moves on, assuming that it does at some point. And we'll need this refuge. Often we call this samadhi, this beautiful, stable, balanced, clarity, and healed quality of the heart and mind, healed in the sense that 
mental activity isn't tormenting the heart and mind. And isn't that the case so much of the time where our own mental activity is tormenting the heart and mind? So this week I want to talk more specifically about feeling tone. Um, you might remember last week uh, I mentioned that in this um, several month sequence of talks on the Buddha's path, the Eightfold Path, and now we're talking about this third of the path that is about healing the mind and heart, which involves wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration, wise stability. And in the wise mindfulness part, last week we talked about uh, opening, having a peaceful and wise way to relate to body, to embodiment. And how to do that, to actually be with the body, we have to overcome a lot of fixed views, a lot of sort of habits where we see the body in particular ways. We shouldn't presume we know how to meet the body and be with the body in an ongoing way because we have a lot of conditioned habits to you know, like the body, not like the body, see it as something permanent in a way that it's not. It's really a, a movement or a flow of experiencing that we call body. These five physical senses of hearing and seeing and tasting and touching and smelling. And they're all in motion, flowing onward, never stopping. And to be with that movement of body, that wild, alive quality of embodiment, that takes some time. But when the heart, the mind that knows, the mind that relates, the sensitive heart, when it meets the body and learns how to not be afraid of the body, not be afraid of the pain or difficulty, and not be enchanted by the pleasantness in the body, and not ignoring the neutrality, the ordinary experience in the body and these five physical senses, then there can be this beautiful marriage, this beautiful coming together of intimacy, that full, subtle, and deep and wide presence with the body, and non-attachment, non-struggling, non-grasping. And then that's experienced in a very visceral way as a kind of pervasive calm, being more settled. I mean, this is not rocket science. We all have moved been pushed around probably times when we do feel more embodied, more peacefully connected with the changing experience of the body, and other times when we're quite distant and disconnected and at war with the experience of the body, or grasping, trying to make something last in the body. And we've learned the difference between the stress of that and the ease and release of that integration of mind and body, that healed integration of mind and body. But that is really the, turns out to be the, a refuge and itself quite a healed, healing space. But it's also the ground for insight. It allows the mind, or wisdom we could say, to start deepening its understanding. And so the next part of these foundations of mindfulness is bringing awareness to the feeling tone, the underlying feeling tone. 
that's experienced energetically, but it's really considered a mental object, right? The conclusion or the, in a way, it's a kind of perception, oh, this is pleasant, or this is unpleasant, or this is neutral. Because the feeling tone, without a lot of wisdom, our mind reacts just because of conditioned habit. It just reacts to whatever feeling tone is going on. And if you're getting a little rush right now from the talk, you're really understanding and it's pleasant. Well, if we're not aware with wisdom of that pleasantness you're getting, then your mind might just start spinning off with how you're going to become, you know, the next Buddha or whatever. Or if you're not finding the talk pleasant, right, then your mind is likely, unless there's some wisdom present, to start reacting to the unpleasantness. Maybe I can just shut this down, do something else, or whatever it might be. Find something better. I think I read this a couple of weeks ago. Um, I mentioned that Doug McGill interviewed Saida Utejaniya, this wonderful Burmese um, meditation teacher and Buddhist monk. And uh, he was talking about you know, practicing uh, with the COVID-19, with this virus. And he mentioned that he always teaches the same thing. During a pandemic, his, the instructions are the same. And he says, I'm, we're not practicing to make things happen in the mind, such as equanimity, or to make things go away, such as fear or anxiety. Rather, we practice in order to observe things as they are happening, and to understand. So as we develop some momentum, some continuity, this being with the body, being with embodiment, and we get the fruit of that, which is a greater stability, because the mind has made peace, the knowing mind has made peace with the changing nature of the body, changing nature of the experience through the five physical senses, right? Then there the experience is feeling grounded, stable, more balanced, more clear. And then what can then be studied, right? Not to study in order to get more of a pleasant feeling or to get rid of unpleasant feeling, but study feeling tone as it comes and goes. A memory might percolate up and it might have a pleasant feeling tone associated with it. Sensations in the knee may arise, may have an unpleasant feeling tone associated with it. A disturbing sound from outside, a pleasant sound from outside. And so even in the relative, sim relatively simple conditions of our meditation space, where we sit at home, there's still going to be this constant mix of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral showing up. Maybe, you know, hopefully, because it's not easy to practice when it, things are intensely pleasant and intensely unpleasant, hopefully it's, you know, workable, the mix of pleasantness and unpleasantness and neutrality. But whatever it is, we do our best to work with it. We continue to sit relatively still, posture relatively upright, body relaxed, and we, in that stability of awareness, 
we notice, we move from being intimate with the body to being more specifically interested in the movement of feeling tone. Because when a feeling tone arises, like a pleasant feeling tone, part of what causes the mind to react, to want to hold on to it, is it thinks it can get something from something pleasant. But if we just stay there more with interest, wisdom and interest, we see that whatever is pleasant is in the process of changing. Pleasant experience doesn't really last that long, generally speaking. And unpleasant experience doesn't really last that long. It's always in motion. Maybe the motion is it's becoming more unpleasant, or maybe it's becoming less unpleasant. But it will change. And we can even contemplate, you know, with some more thought, oh yeah, I remember that time when my life was extremely, intensely unpleasant. And it's not that way anymore. Or I remember that time when things were incredibly wonderful and pleasant. And it's not that way anymore. So we can cultivate, we can help the heart, the mind, loosen this habit of fixing on feeling tone as if it's a kind of savior. Like getting rid of an unpleasant feeling tone is going to save the day. You know, it's too cold in this room. If only I could get a sweater on, then the day is saved. Well, it will feel nice probably to put the sweater on, but it won't actually change things very much. And the same thing of, you know, um, having something pleasant, like eating lunch, will be nice, hopefully, for many of us, and then it will be over. And so whatever the niceness of that lunch might be for us, it doesn't actually add up to much. And this has always been the case with pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral experience. So in a way, as people who have been inspired by these teachings from the Buddha, what it really means, I mean just in nuts and bolts, is that we're really curious about developing a stability of present moment awareness, which is itself quite healing and beneficial. But that's in a way just the beginning so we can start to contemplate more subtle aspects of our experience, like that everything the mind experiences through the body and even through the mind itself, like the thoughts that we have in the mind itself, everything that we experience has an associated feeling tone with it. And, here's the kicker, the mind is deeply, the sort of surface level of our conditioning is to react to the feeling tone. To ignore what's, uh, what's neutral, which is probably, you know, I don't know, 90% of the present moment is neutral, and we have this deep habit to ignore it. So no wonder we feel so disconnected from life. We've sort of the habit, the deeply conditioned habit, is to write off most of our experience because this part of the mind, this conditioned part of the mind, doesn't think it matters because it has an ordinary feeling tone. And the pleasant stuff, of course, the deep habit, is to attach to it, to want it to last. And the unpleasant stuff we identify with as being bad and we want to get rid of. That pain, painful experience, emotional experience, physical experience, pain is painful. It's not bad. 
It's just painful. And sometimes that information that it's painful informs some choices that need to be made. Like I'm going to move away from this place that's painful. It's too hot over here. I'm going to go sit over there. But sometimes the fact that an experience, a moment is painful, is unpleasant, doesn't really give us any useful information about a change of something we need to do. It's just painful and nothing really to do about that right now. There's a, a wonderful line, one of the Buddhist saints from long ago, Shanti Deva, um, I think maybe ninth century India, um, in the Mahayana tradition of Buddhism that arose in northern India several many centuries after the time of the Buddha. Really wonderful, wise teacher, and he wrote this guide to a bodhisattva's way of life. Someone dedicated for the out of compassion for the well-being of all beings. And this is a section that's really about patience. And you might recognize this statement because the Dalai Lama, you know, in his talks, he often repeats some version of this teaching from Shantideva. And here, Stephen Batchelor translates it this way. Why be unhappy about something if it can be remedied? And what is the use of being unhappy about something if it cannot be remedied? Right? And so you could translate, we could translate this to being about feeling tone. Why be unhappy about something if it can be remedied? So if there's an unpleasant feeling tone, or there's a pleasant feeling tone, and there's something we can do without causing ourselves or anybody harm to sort of make the unpleasant feeling tone go away or allow the pleasant feeling tone to linger a little longer, why not? But if there's nothing we can do about the unpleasant or the pleasant, there's nothing we can do. But either case, why get tied up into a knot around a feeling tone, whether it's neutral, pleasant, or unpleasant? So part of the way we can understand our practice is how to be even, how to be at ease and even and intimate and free, liberated, in this world where we're basically exposed or vulnerable to different feeling tones coming our way. Because you and I, we don't actually control the feeling tone. Because every time we have an experience, whether it's a memory, a thought, or seeing something, hearing something, smelling something, feeling some tactile experience in the body, there will be an associated feeling tone. And that just comes with the territory of being a sensitive living being and the way the mind works, that where it associates a feeling tone with every sense contact, every sense experience. So the work in our practice, the development of insight is re the realization that we can be intimate with this exposure to feeling tone, that it's actually um, really liberating to not be in denial, not to kind of take the path of being disconnected, 
but really rely on the path of being connected, being open, being sensitive, being interested. And I've mentioned this in the past, a lot of Dharma teachers mentioned this, that the more we dig into the practice, we end up becoming more and more sensitive, more, in a sense, vulnerable and exposed to life. We feel more. And it's not just we're feeling what's here for us, but we're also sensitive, intuitive, uh, and exposed to what's swirling and moving around us in our friends and in the wider world. And it may seem like a problem until wisdom has a chance to catch up with that sensitivity. And generally for us, sensitivity leads where, you know, as we practice, we become more sensitive and it almost provokes the deepening of wisdom. Wisdom is that understanding that isn't afraid of the exposure of feeling what we feel. This wildness and sometimes intensity of pleasant and unpleasant and neutral. But now seen or experienced because how samadhi, this stability of present moment awareness, seemingly amplifies our sensitivity. So something that's neutral seems really neutral, like it's just this, big deal. Or something that's pleasant appears really beautiful. There's sort of a joke, you know, after a retreat, someone's had a nice nine-day retreat or something, and they walk out of the retreat center, you know, and drive down the road or get picked up or whatever, but the grass seems greener and the stoplight at the intersection seems vividly red and everything is just sort of pops because of the sensitivity. So if, we, if we're not developing through a contemplation of feeling tone, if we're not actually interested, and this is really what this teaching from the Buddha is about, he's inviting us to be interested in the feeling tone. What's the feeling tone here? We can actually make that a new habit in the mind to ask ourselves as we're living our life and doing our sitting practice, well, what's the feeling tone here? Is it pleasant? Is it unpleasant? Is it neutral? Because that, when we realize, oh, it's a pleasant feeling, then we can relate to that pleasant feeling for at least some moments with equanimity. And then we get to see the habit of attachment that wants the pleasantness to last. It's because of the equanimity with the feeling tone that we get to see the habit energy of the mind and recognize it for what it is. Not self, it's impersonal, and not helpful. And through wisdom being there, the wisdom of non-identification, not grasping or identifying with that habit to hold on to the pleasant, we, we can have a different relationship to pleasant experience. Same thing holds with unpleasant experience. Because I know how to be in the body, I know how to be, contemplate feeling tone as something that just comes and goes with time, with practice. I can notice the unpleasant feeling tone. So it's like we have knee pain, the throbbing or whatever the burning feeling might be. I stabilize awareness. I notice the not liking of the feeling tone. I notice the unpleasantness of the feeling tone. I realize it's just this experience being known. And with that, this wisdom, this equanimity arises 
that knows how to be with the throbbing, the burning, knows how to be with the not liking of the pain, knows how to be with the unpleasantness of this experience, without, so intimacy without grasping, without personalizing. And over and over again, in little steps, we sense the freedom in that. But remember, it doesn't mean that the answer is this sort of static non-reactivity. It's really the freedom. If there's something we can do, as Shantideva says, that doesn't cause anybody any harm, oh, sure, we can do it then. We can move the knee, stretch out the leg so the knee pain dissipates. But maybe sometime we'll have pain in the body that there isn't anything we can do with. Well, no problem, because over the years and maybe decades of our practice, we've been practicing, like sitting still for 30 minutes or 45 minutes in a daily sitting practice, or going on retreat and sitting many times during the day and doing walking practice, and something difficult shows up. But there's a sense of like letting that difficulty, because of the stability of awareness, letting it come into the center of one's experience. Oh, Maybe this can be okay. It's these sensations being known, this mental reaction, not liking, because of the unpleasantness. We see the interdependent dynamic of the not liking, of the feeling tone, of the sensations. And we see that when the mind identifies with it, there really is a mini hell realm. The mind suffers. Because it's in that bubble a feeling like the pain in the knee is personal. It's out to get me. I got to get rid of it. There's no way to be balanced. There's no way to find that refuge of presence until this pain goes away. When it's gone, then I can come back to that beautiful, calm, stable presence. But first I got to fix this problem. That doesn't lead anywhere, right? That idea that circumstances, conditions have to be perfect, then I can be peaceful. And this is definitely a shadow in Buddhist practice, you know, like uh, how much we want conditions just right. We get that sweet spot, we've got the perfect altar, the perfect meditation shawl, the perfect meditation space, the perfect friends, Dharma friends that are sitting with us. I got my perfect bodily experience sitting with just the right supports. And we can uh, wrongly go down this path where we think happiness is when we get everything just right. And actually that, we'll notice that that's not the way because that path gets narrower and narrower. Because of the greater sensitivity we end up week by week having more and more needs. Oh, if only I could do add this piece, make it this way. And our demands, like, I'll be just fine if I get this added, add this, add that. And pretty much we get to a place where we don't belong in life anymore because we're never in total control of the conditions around us and they're always subject to change. And so we feel, and even when we do kind of get a good setup where we have a lot of what we want, back there in the mind, 
we know it could change. And so we're a little tight, even when we have the perfect, so-called perfect conditions, we're a little tight because we know we're, they, they're not going to last. They're not dependable. So that subtle fear, in a way, will contaminate even a relative, a relatively nice situation for ourselves. So that's why the Buddha really highlights this contemplation of feeling tone, because it it it's such a essential part of learning how to be a human being. Because as a conditioned human being, as I mentioned. Every experience is going to have a feeling tone associated with it. It's a wonderful comment and question sent in um, by Sandy for our discussion this morning. And this person just mentions that they've been practicing for many decades, although initially using a mantra practice from their yoga tradition. And um, they mentioned having listened to some of the talks from a workshop that uh, Wynne Fricky and I and uh, Shelley and I think Stacy McClendon was part of that workshop on uncertainty. I think we did it this fall. The talk should be up on our Dharma Seed site if you want to listen. Um, but I, the workshop was something called, um, it has, has the word uncertainty, working with uncertainty. And the person writes here in the question, I felt so much fear gripping in me. And then as I sat with it, there was such a feeling of grief. My question about uncertainty is, is there a way of guiding our spirit to a place of seeing or being with this very plain truth that's beyond the self's grief and heartache? So let me just reread that. Is there a way of guiding our spirit to a place of seeing or being with this very plain truth that's beyond the self's grief and heartache? It feels like there's an acceptance that has to be tended to. And is there also a wisdom that's trying to arise out of facing this reality of uncertainty? How do I nurture nurture? the heart in the face of change but not stagnate in the fear of loss and move forward from a wise, abiding, more joyful presence within. I really love how this person articulated their own practice and that question is so powerful and you know, as I'm guessing a lot of you know, these questions are something to value and hold, not rush to some answer, right? Because it's the question itself clarifies the ground, the working ground of our practice, right? Because you see how that person's question actually creates some stability, some clarity, so we can be, we can contemplate this unpleasantness of uncertainty, the unpleasantness of vulnerability, in a sense, the unpleasantness of, of insecurity and vulnerability and uncertainty, it's the deepest, essential unpleasantness of a sense of a me, this egoic sense of me, 
wanting solid ground, wanting safety. And because I'm having a more honest relationship with life, now I'm beginning to doubt whether there is that safety, that solid ground. And so, and sometimes like a pandemic or some experience of loss, financial insecurity, whatever it might be, that becomes, that truth becomes more apparent to us of uncertainty and insecurity. And then it gives us like this question about something, as this person writes, something arising out of that exposure. Is there a wisdom that's trying to arise to arise out of facing this reality of uncertainty? How do I nurture the, the heart in the face of change? That beautiful stability, intimacy, that love is that ability to include our insecurity and vulnerability. And I think it really has to do with this contemplation of feeling tone. Because that's what will really stabilize this work this person is talking about, where we're contemplating these times in our life where there is this exposure. And then we can ask ourselves, well, what is it? What is the underlying feeling here? What is the underlying feeling tone? And in this case, obviously, it would be unpleasant. Initially, especially unpleasant. Almost as if it's guarded by demons. Don't go here, don't look here, don't feel here. But our wisdom, our awakening practice inspires us. Well, let me just touch in here. Let me just sense if it's safe to be interested, to be a little bit more undefended or curious. What is the feeling tone? What is the ouch here? That seemingly dark and terrible place of insecurity, of uncertainty, of loss, that nothing can be counted on. And it's not about choosing to die or choosing to lose what you love. It's, it's learning to live in a more integrated way because we already know that whatever we have is subject to change. So why not integrate that truth in a more honest way so that we can live free of having to be in denial and having to live in an ignorant way as if Change doesn't happen to us, doesn't apply to us. Impermanence and insecurity, does that's something that happens to other people, of course, but not to me. So it's almost like we're using imagination, this contemplation, knowing that we're vulnerable to every single feeling tone. So let's get used to that. Let's contemplate how we can be with every feeling tone, no matter its intensity, no matter what end of the spectrum, pleasant or unpleasant it comes from. I'm not afraid. And of course, this isn't something we can convince ourselves. We actually have to practice. We practice with the feeling tones that are actually showing up for us. Here's a passage from the Buddha. Just as many diverse winds blow back and forth across the sky, easterly winds westerly winds, northerly winds, southerly winds, dusty winds, dustless winds, sometimes cold, sometimes hot, 
those that are strong, others mild, winds of many kinds that blow. So in this very body here, various kinds of feelings arise, pleasant ones, painful ones, and those that are neutral. But when one diligently does not neglect clear comprehension, then that wise one fully understands feelings in their entirety. Having fully understood feelings, one is influx-free. Here, influx, these sort of uh, outflows, inflows, agitations of the heart. One is influx-free in this very life, standing in Dharma, standing in the reality of the way it is right now. With the body's breakup, such a master of knowledge cannot be reckoned. And here's Venerable Analio, this wonderful German monk, one of my teachers. In other words, to get excited about particular feelings is about as meaningful as contending with the vicissitudes of the weather. Both are best to run their natural course in knowledge that they will anyway change. So we can meet the weather today. We can even be intimate with the weather today but we're not creating a dependence, like trying to be somebody because of the weather today, trying to uh, use it to create safety, because we know it's going to change. Take care, everybody. Wishing you all safety and ease out there. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.